This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with support from the new podcast, Poe, exclusively on Stitcher Premium. Edgar Allan Poe is the original king of spookiness, and his stories can still evoke shivers 200 years later. Each week, you'll get two of the creepiest Poe stories, one as a classic retelling, and the other as a modern reimagined version of that story, so you can hear it in a whole new way. The classic episodes are like intense and deeply compelling creepy bedtime stories, while the reimagined episodes are spoken as if by a character in a movie and have more modern sound design and music, so you can drop into the world of the stories in all their full spookiness. They're both perfect to listen to, curled up with the lights low, a cup of tea, and your dog in your lap. Poe is out now. Listen exclusively on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com poe. Click Start Free Trial, select a monthly plan, and enter the promo code POE. That's stitcherpremium.com slash POE, code P-O-E. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. second wave. Yeah, it's like they're but this one's much longer. I've lost yeah. count. And then they're evenly spaced in this. pairs. I can't film it. There's no... I have my, I have my this. telescope, but it's not... This, this is... This is, this is so crazy. crazy. This is not... Okay. Well, I'm glad you guys are here, because if we were camping alone and I saw this, I'd be like, what the... Bezos has unleashed his drone army. I mean, if you look over there, it's still coming. Actually, this is... This is a straight up. I've lost counts long, long ago. Like there's been a hundred. This is not no normal phenomenon. So we got there to the campground and you could see Mars setting as the last of the sunset was fading out. So we were getting ready for another evening of stargazing. And all of a sudden I hear, oh my God, what's that? Look up, look up. And there's this line of dozens and dozens of lights in a straight line all moving in unison across the sky. I've been out at night camping a lot of times, never seen anything like this. The sunlight was hitting them and so they were glowing really, really bright. And so it didn't look like any kind of satellite that I'd ever seen before. And they took about three minutes at least, maybe it seemed longer, maybe it was five minutes for this to pass over. And it looked like it was directly over our campsite and the lights were really, really bright. And uh, you see like 60 of these things going in a straight line across the sky, all following each other at the same speed. And then when they got far enough to the east, they went into the shadow of the earth and they just faded out. And then a drunk guy shows up from the next campsite and he's going, it's an invasion, the aliens are invading. He seemed pretty convinced. He was like, they're here. And he was like welcoming it. He's like, yay, they're finally here. But it was a very concerning moment. And it was kind of comical because I'm thinking, well, if the aliens were landing, they don't need lights on the outside of their ships. <laughs> you know, they're not trying to abide by, uh, you know, aviation regulations. 
That's my friend Mokai, describing the time he went out stargazing and inadvertently spotted the Starlink satellites, which had been recently launched by SpaceX, Elon Musk's space exploration company. Starlink launched the first operational batch of 60 satellites in May of 2019. When seen from the ground shortly after launch, the satellites appear as a train of bright, star-like lights moving across the sky. The number of these low-Earth orbit satellites, or LEOSATs, has been steadily growing, creating a new phenomenon in the sky, something referred to as mega-constellations. Astronomy is the oldest science, and the night sky is completely embedded in every culture. Until just 100 years ago, the night sky was was visible everywhere. The stars were visible everywhere. Everybody knew what the Milky Way was and what it looked like. Everybody knew what the phases of the moon were. Uh, people planned their travel around the phases of the moon. Uh, the night sky, the motions of the planets and the stars, worked their way into all of civilization's religions, all of our cosmologies, our sense of what the universe is and, and how it works and what our place in it, what our role is. Uh, all inextricably linked with astronomy and, and the sky. And it, this continues today in, in many ways that are largely invisible. For example, the month comes from the orbit of the moon. The year comes from the orbit of the Earth. The calendar of every civilization is based to some degree in astronomy. My name is James Lowenthal. I'm professor of astronomy at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. I work on galaxy formation and galaxy evolution. I'm motivated by the, the basic question, how did galaxies get to be the way they are? And I study certain kinds of galaxies that are especially good for this. Galaxies that are starbursting, for example. A galaxy is a huge collection of stars, 100 billion stars in the case of our Milky Way galaxy. And our context is that, of course, we live in one. We live on the Earth. The Earth goes around the sun. The sun is a star, one of about 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. The Milky Way a galaxy is a huge pancake, and uh, the sun is like a blueberry in a huge blueberry pancake. And those who have seen the Milky Way, which is unfortunately a minority of Americans because of light pollution, uh, the Milky Way is largely invisible for most people. But those who have seen the Milky Way see a stream of light across the sky, uh, a sort of path of light. That is all stars. Think of it as extra blueberries when you're looking in the plane of the Milky Way. And the big question for my research is, um, how did the Milky Way get to be a pancake like that? How did it get to have spiral arms? How did it get to be the size it is? How did it have the components it has? Not just the sun, but many other components. And the Milky Way is only one galaxy. There are 100 billion of them in the universe that we can observe. And they're strewn across the sky and strewn in, in distance, back and back and back, further and further and further away, which for us is very convenient because it helps us look back in time. Uh, the way we, we go about my work of addressing that question, how do galaxies form and evolve, is by looking back in time. We do that by looking very far away because it takes a long time for the light to get to us. And now with our best instruments and techniques and biggest telescopes on the Earth and in space, like Hubble Space Telescope, we are able to see back in time a good 12 billion years. The whole universe is only 14 billion years old, even less. So we're seeing well over 90% of the way back in time towards the Big Bang. And we're able to see the very earliest galaxies and catch glimpses of them as they were forming. It's sort of like getting baby pictures to try to understand how humans turn into adults. 
Talking to Dr. Lowenthal is like talking to a brilliant, lovable character in a movie with Tom Hanks or Robin Williams. He has a PhD in astronomy, but he's not confined to an ivory tower. Last night, I was in the backyard, and my wife and I looked up at the full moon. So beautiful, silvery full moon with clouds drifting in front of it. The new leaves of the New England sugar maple trees, black in silhouette against that sky. So gorgeous, such a a special, beautiful, moving moment. And I'm happy to say I get those moments all the time. I'm out at night all the time for my work and uh, I'm a night owl. Uh, I'm often uh, riding my bike to the office or back uh, late at night, sometimes after midnight. And uh, I'm often up on the roof of our building at Smith College with the telescopes, with the students. And uh, I get the opportunity and I take it to look at the stars, to look at the planets, to look for a glimpse of the Milky Way, to see every sunset and sunrise I possibly can. So I'm always looking and and every chance gives me an opportunity to be moved. The night sky, it's really like home to me. It's so familiar and I feel as if I need it. I know the constellations. It's just beautiful. It's a source of, of nourishment. It's a source of wonder. I just love it, and I love to, I just love to look at it. I love to think about the way it works. It just feels like such a a privilege that I get to do this professionally. I I get to use some of the biggest telescopes in the world to answer or address these really big questions, which you might say are not important because they're not going to save humanity, but I don't really care. That's not why I do it. I do it because it's fascinating to me, and I, I love that the night sky is always there. You can't always see it mostly because of light pollution, but of course also because of weather. But it's always there, and it'll always be there. And uh, that's a source of of solace. At the same time, it's a source of concern. So then, you know, lately, I would say my love of the night sky and my appreciation of it, it's increasingly tinged with worry and uh, concern that it will be hidden from my view and hidden from my daughter's view. It's going to be temporary, it'll come back, but it shouldn't go away in the first place. The night sky is not only embedded in all human culture, it's central to the question of who we are as a species. The biggest questions I think most people ponder include ones like, where did we come from? And at some basic level, that's an astronomical question. Earth is an astronomical object. Earth was formed in the same process that formed the sun and the rest of the solar system. To understand where we came from, you might ask, um, are we alone? Are there other life forms out there off of the Earth? These big questions, they're really profound. Since almost the beginning, the map of the night sky has been used by humans as a tool to answer these questions. Humans have looked to the night sky for so many reasons, for so many generations and so many millennia. Humans have used the night sky for practical purposes, to know when to plant and when to reap their crops, to keep track of their calendars for religious purposes, for celebration, to know when summer will come or when winter will end. We've looked to the sky scientifically, of course. Practically, all of our understanding, our early understanding of of gravity and orbits comes from naked eye observations. Astronomers like Tycho Brahe in in Denmark, and Johannes Kepler, and Copernicus, and Galileo in the early Renaissance, 
who looked to the, the stars and the planets, first with naked eye and then Galileo with a crude telescope, to ask some simple questions that had been the source of puzzlement for millennia. How does it all work? What goes around what? Does the sun go around the earth or does the earth go around the sun? Uh, what else goes around what else? What makes it do that? And it all came from observations of the sky, careful, detailed observations inherited from past generations and then, and then improved upon through painstaking night after night of careful, detailed observation. Of course, all of those discoveries were made before the very modern problem of light pollution. What has happened in the last hundred years since the invention of the electric light bulb is a slow, steady erosion of the night sky. Starting 100 years ago, it started to get brighter and brighter and brighter as we illuminated more and more of our communities, our cities, our towns, our streets, our parking lots, our front porches. Nobody intended to light up the sky, but that's what's happened. It's, it's been a careless, thoughtless, tragic use and overuse of light that has uh, now eroded the night sky with light pollution to the point where more than three quarters of Americans cannot see the Milky Way from where they live. In fact, that's true for practically the whole developed world. All of, uh, of Europe suffers the same problem. Instead of seeing roughly 5,000 stars, you're lucky if you can see 1,000. And we're losing stars at the rate of about one per hour as light pollution continues to grow. The problem of light pollution has been written and talked about a lot at this point, although it's still under the radar for many people. Part of the reason for this is that, like clean air and water or access to natural places, it's something that we tend to take for granted until we start to lose it. The night sky and the stars and the Milky Way and the planets are an essential part of nature, and they're an essential part of the universe around us. And to be deprived of them is like being deprived of trees or sunsets or clean air or clean water. These are basic needs. And you might say, well, we need clean water and clean air more than, than any of those because that's for our health. But I think that's not quite right. In fact, uh, we need a dark night as well for our health. It's essential, in fact. And light pollution turns out to have many consequences beyond the spiritual nourishment of humans or religious use or uh, aesthetic appreciation. But those are incredibly important. Aesthetics matter. Beauty matters a lot. And without beauty and poetry and art, we're not human. And the night sky is, is poetry incarnate. Everybody has a right to see the stars and nobody has a right to, to take those away from humans or the rest of the natural world that also depends on the night sky. In 2016, Lowenthal gave a TEDx talk warning that with the availability of cheap LED lights, light pollution all around the world was about to get much worse very quickly. Little did he know that there was a much bigger threat to the night sky right around the corner. I had no idea that we were about to get hammered by satellites which is a totally different issue. At the time of that talk, spotting an occasional satellite up above was a fun novelty. It used to be kind of a, a special thing. We would be out in some dark place admiring the night sky, doing stargazing, maybe with a telescope, maybe naked eye, and somebody would say, oh, look, oh, no, that's just an airplane. No, wait, look, that's a satellite. 
And that was so cool. You could tell a satellite from an airplane because airplanes blink, satellites don't. Airplanes might have another color besides the sort of pure white color of sunlight. Satellites are just reflecting sunlight. Satellites move very steadily in one direction. They don't turn around. So you use all these tricks, you, you determine, ah, yeah, that's a satellite. That was pretty cool, but it would happen rarely. And we knew that, that it would happen mostly at the twilight hours when your part of the Earth had just turned into the night side, but high above you, uh, maybe 500 or 1,000 kilometers up, the satellites were still in the sunlight, not in the Earth's shadow yet. So that's the best time to see them. And so wherever we were, out in the desert or in rural Connecticut, it, you could see a satellite, especially in the twilight hours. So all my life I've seen them, but it was mostly only in, uh, in ones and twos. And now that has just dramatically changed. Lowenthal remembers clearly the first time he realized how profoundly things had changed. It was uh, almost exactly two years ago to the day was the first launch of SpaceX Starlink, where 60 Starlink satellites were launched in one rocket that released the 60 satellites at an altitude of about 350 kilometers above the surface. And then those satellites spread out over the course of the next few days and weeks into a ring around the Earth. But soon after launch, they were a tightly packed bunch of satellites in a string. Now, I knew this was going to happen. I'm plugged into various communities that are networking about this, and I'm a member of the Committee of the American Astronomical Society called the Committee on Light Pollution, Radio Interference, and Space Debris. And one of the experts on that committee had been saying for some time, for the last year or so, oh, you know, these constellations of satellites, these big constellations with thousands of satellites, they're coming soon. Oh, there's going to be a launch of Starlink soon. But none of us realized how bright they were going to be. That night of realization in 2019, James Lowenthal and a colleague were in New Hampshire at the base of Mount Washington with a group of students. Earlier in the day, James had seen a video someone had posted from Holland showing a string of bright satellites trailing across the night sky. And I thought, oh boy, well, here they are. But it was just a video. It was hard to really internalize. Fast forward a couple of hours, we, we were outside uh, that evening under a beautiful clear sky with the telescopes, uh, I and, and uh, six or eight students. And one of the students uh, suddenly pointed and said, what is that? And we all turned and looked. And there, sure enough, was what I had seen in the video earlier that day, but in real life. This string of really, really bright satellites. There were 10, 20, 30. There were 60 satellites in a row trailing across the sky, so-called string of pearls. And they were bright. They were as bright as some of the brightest stars in the sky. And I knew immediately what it was. And I was filled with a mix of awe and dread. As a scientist, seeing this manifestation of human knowledge and ingenuity was exciting. It's really cool. It's technologically amazing. It's great to think about in the way that I like to think about things moving in space and to understand the orbits. And at the same time, I knew the night sky really would never be the same, that this was the beginning of a very uh, serious problem and a slippery slope that we were going to have a lot of trouble getting off of. 
So the night sky is rapidly filling with thousands of satellites that exist in low orbit. But what are we talking about here? Are they the size of a drone or more like a VW bus? They are pretty big as satellites go. The Starlink satellites are about two meters long. Uh, that's about six feet. And that's just the the business end, the, the satellite part where all the electronics are. And then the solar panel is about six meters long, which is about 18 feet long. So it's a pretty big thing. It's bigger than your typical living room. And that's only one of them. Astronomers were immediately alarmed at the prospect of hundreds or thousands of bright, living room-sized objects filling the night sky. The next few weeks or months after that were a flurry of activity with those of us who had seen it naked eye and those of us who understood, comprehended the magnitude of the problem, trying to grab our colleagues by the lapels and shake them and say, wake up, you have to realize how serious this is. This is something that I, on the, the American Astronomical Society Committee on Light Pollution, Radio Interference and Space Debris, I had failed to comprehend until I saw it with my own eyes. So it, it took some doing, it took, it took work to, uh, to get the astronomical community. There are 7,000 members of the AAS and, and some tens of thousands of professional astronomers you know, worldwide. So it, it took a few, a few months, but bit by bit, people really woke up to the, the gravity of the problem. And a lot of astronomers quickly began jumping up and down and posting really angry, just furious social media posts saying, who does Elon Musk think he is? And what you know, what right does SpaceX have to, to to take away the night sky from everybody else? And other astronomers saying, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, but I think not really understanding quite how bad it was going to get. To date, SpaceX has launched over 1,700 Starlink satellites, with plans for 30,000 more. To give it some perspective, let's see. From the start of the space age in the late 1950s until... 2019, so that's more than 60 years. It took all of that time to put about 20,000 things into orbit, big enough to be tracked by the US government. And only about 200 of those were big enough to be visible to the naked eye when they catch the sunlight just so. So the satellites that you could see before Starlink, uh, that you could see naked eye trailing across the, the twilight sky, there were fewer than 200 of those. Now, SpaceX alone has multiplied that by nearly a factor of 10, almost 2,000 now, in just two years. And SpaceX is one of only dozens of companies planning to launch mega constellations or large constellations of low Earth orbit satellites. OneWeb, Amazon, India, China, Telsat, the companies are just lined up, each of them developing its own plan. The plans currently announced amount to some 100,000 satellites in low Earth orbit in the next 10 years alone. You heard right. That will be 100,000 bright living room-sized objects visible overhead. Already with a tiny fraction of that in the sky now, the effects are grim. So it's crazy. And it is already having a huge impact on astronomy. There are now dozens and dozens of pictures uh, posted on the internet of research images ruined by satellites crisscrossing them. There are countless amateur astronomer 
photographs, astrophotography, buffs out there in the dark skies of, of Africa or the Middle East or the American Southwest or, or China, uh, taking pictures of gorgeous scenes far from city lights that, that once would have been just pristine dark sky. And now they're crisscrossed by dozens and dozens of satellites. Um, so it's, it's already having an effect. It's already changed the sky and it's only gonna get worse. James is concerned on a professional level, but his reaction is also very personal. It is devastating. It's, it, it's with me every day. Um, I, I, you know, I can't get away from it, and nobody else can either. Again, you used to be able to go to a remote part of the world to get away from light pollution. Out in the ocean, thousands of miles from land, it would be pitch black. There you would get real dark sky, but not anymore. Now you're going to be plagued with these satellites and some of them maybe even in the middle of the night. In summertime, when the sun is not very low below the horizon, it can actually illuminate satellites all night long. You might ask, why is this a problem? Well, aside from the sense of continuity, connection, and wonder that humans get from seeing the same stars throughout the ages. The real devastation for an astronomer, of course, is what if we cannot do our work anymore? What if we just can't study the cosmos from the surface of the Earth? It's as if we're blinding ourselves. There are so many ironies here. Maybe the most obvious one is all of our understanding of gravity and orbits comes from naked eye observations of the planets and the sun and the moon moving around the sky. And here we are now using the results of that understanding, using our understanding of gravity, using our understanding of general relativity. All of those things are enabling the LEOSAT constellations, and they are now blinding us to, or potentially blinding us to, further study. And so that's a very bitter pill to swallow. We've held now two major conferences, one national and one international, last year in 2020, that address the impacts of these new low-Earth orbit satellites, LEOSATs, on astronomy, on all different fields of astronomy. And the picture is, um, is varied. There's a range of impacts, but it's never good. It never helps anybody to have more satellites in the sky. Uh, it never helps astronomers, that is. It never helps our science. It only hurts it. And in some cases, it hurts it dramatically. Everything from tracking killer asteroids that are about to strike the Earth to the study of distant galaxies, practically every field of astronomy is impacted by these mega constellations of satellites. But the worst impacts are to the new generation of very large, wide-field telescopes, like the Vera Rubin Observatory, nearing completion in Chile. That telescope has been in the works for decades and costs over a billion dollars. It has as its mission to map the entire southern sky every three nights. And because it's very, very sensitive, it can detect very, very faint light, which is its whole goal. And because it's wide field, meaning it looks at large swaths of the sky at one shot, it is especially vulnerable to satellites trailing across it. And thousands of scientists have devoted their careers already for decades to working on the Vera Rubin Observatory's plan. And we want to get the most out of it and to use every single piece, every pixel of every image, and every minute of a dark night sky that we can. Part of this process has involved planning and scheduling where the telescope will look and at what times. And years before first light, years before we actually uh, open the telescope to the sky for the first time, we've already got a scheduling algorithm in place. And guess what? It's not usable. 
because of the satellites. It is impossible to find a place to look in the sky with the Vera Rubin Observatory that will not be affected by satellites. And that project has many, many different scientific goals, including the nature of dark energy, the nature of dark matter, the, the shape and the fate of the universe, the stars that explode as supernovae 10 billion years ago and let us measure the effect of general relativity on the curvature of space-time, the search for killer asteroids. So there are potentially devastating effects rippling through many, many different branches of astronomy and therefore not just the Rubin Observatory, but all the myriad other telescopes, other observatories, other careers, other institutes and departments and programs around the world that depend on the Rubin Observatory and this major international investment. So the impacts are really potentially catastrophic for, for research astronomy. According to Dr. Lowenthal, there is one thing driving all of this. The reason for all these satellites is high-speed broadband internet. High-speed internet for underserved communities around the world sounds great. Yes, well, the predictions are that um, 80% of internet use by 2023 will be for streaming, which, you know, includes porn and, and Netflix and whatever else people are streaming. So maybe it's worth it. You know, you can, you can judge for yourself. But frankly, I've already got high-speed enough internet. I, I don't need to ruin the sky to get faster internet. Now, you might say, well, that's fine. You're a you know, privileged, wealthy North American with access to all kinds of resources. And so you have your high-speed internet. But what if you live in the Kalahari Desert in Africa or somewhere in the middle of the mountains in, in Bolivia? This is important work. It's, it's bridging the digital divide. You know, it's bringing internet to neglected populations around the United States and around the world. Well, okay. How many people are we talking about there and what are they able to pay for it? This is not going to come for free. Somebody has to pay for it. SpaceX is doing this not out of the goodness of their heart, but because they think it's a cool project that could also make some money. And my colleague Meredith Rawls uh, recently wrote a, a paper with some colleagues in which they analyze, well, of all the people who actually need high-speed internet and all the people who can pay for it, it turns out it's a very small fraction of the people in the world. So we're ruining the sky for everybody, for a potentially questionable small market share of people who will actually benefit. And I would just have to say, look, we know how to do internet without satellites. We can do it. Given that the horse is already out of the barn with thousands of Leosats in orbit, who is tasked with monitoring and regulating their effect on the view from below? The answer is nobody. There is some regulation for what you can put up under the sky and how it communicates using radio waves, but there is no regulation at all for the appearance of the sky. There's nothing that that stops somebody from uh, from putting up a bright thing or 10,000 of them and dramatically and permanently changing the night sky. There's no international regulation. There's no national regulation. There is the United Nations Outer Space Treaty of 1967. That says that space is for everybody and it should be for peaceful purposes only, but it doesn't say anything about the appearance of the night sky. Nobody is regulating uh, what the satellites look like. 
you might turn to the National Environmental Protection Act, NEPA, in the United States and say, well, isn't the sky part of the environment? And shouldn't it be protected the way trees and water and air and, and plants and animals are? And the answer is not yet. Many of us are advocating for such a change. Um, look, we have this law in place. Let's use it. The night sky is an important resource and an important part of nature, and it needs our protection. But that is going to be a slow process. Meanwhile, the satellites are just, just zooming ahead. They move on such a short time scale. Two weeks for them is a long time. In two weeks, they can build a whole new batch of satellites with a different design. For us, two decades is barely enough time to build one space telescope, us in astronomy. It takes easily 10 or 20 years to get a, a new big regulation or treaty in place. The diplomatic machinery moves at a very, very slow pace. So this fundamental mismatch between the very fast pace of industry and the slow pace of uh, science and of regulation is another serious problem. Very shortly after the first Starlink launch, the folks at SpaceX noticed the angry online chatter from astronomers raising the alarm, and high-level calls were initiated to work on solutions. We've built a, a working relationship with SpaceX, with their management leadership and their engineers, and we had um, a series of discussions uh, about what the problem was and what we could do about it together. Most of those discussions focused on how to make the satellites look less bright. The brighter they are, the worse they are for us. And they're often very bright at launch. So if you see them within a week of launch, then they're probably still bunched closely together and they're in low Earth orbit. I mean, they're at a low elevation. They haven't been raised to their final parking operating orbit yet. And they can appear really, really bright, as bright as the brightest stars in the sky and very bunched together. So it's a very impressive and, uh, you know, maybe awful sight, depending on your, your point of view. But they will, in the next few weeks and months, uh, disappear from naked eye view. So that's good. So thank you, SpaceX, for that. The problem is they're still too bright. There are still too many of them. And SpaceX is only one of dozens of companies out there. And we have no guarantee. There's no regulation that any of the other satellite operators is, is going to be anywhere as near as responsible as SpaceX has been. And even SpaceX has never said, we will consider not launching. That is just not even on the table. And they don't have to. We have no leverage. So of course, we want all the satellites to stay on the ground. We just don't want them up in orbit. While grounding the LEOSATs is not on the table, SpaceX was willing to discuss where the satellites go and their eventual demise. For example, if they, uh, if they go into orbits about 500 kilometers above the surface of the Earth, they're flying through a little tiny, tiny bit of very, very thin atmosphere, enough that their orbits will decay over the course of about five years. And even if you totally lost control of the satellite, it would, uh, in the course of five or 10 years, on its own, crash back down to the Earth, burn up in the atmosphere. And that's a good thing from our perspective. On the other hand, if, as originally planned for SpaceX, you fly the satellites at 1,000 kilometers, that's above the atmosphere enough that they feel essentially no friction and they're really up there forever. And that's a much worse problem for us. And they also uh, catch more sunlight for more hours of a typical summer night. Lowenthal says that SpaceX was responsive to the astronomers' concerns, devoting a handful of people almost full-time to deal with the problems. 
Not only did they agree to have the satellites orbit at a lower altitude, they also agreed to paint part of them black and tilt them so that they reflect less sunlight onto observatories. We really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Elon Musk uh, came out several times in public and said, I promise we will have zero effect on research astronomy, zero. Um, I promise that our satellites will not be visible naked eye after something like two or three weeks after launch. So these are big promises. And to their credit, they have stuck with it and they have attended our professional meetings. They have continued to communicate productively with us and they've made these changes. And the satellites are now less trouble than the first batch that I saw naked eye. Regardless of promises made, a report by a consortium of astronomy organizations concluded that if the 100,000-plus satellites planned are actually deployed, no combination of mitigations can fully avoid the impacts on astronomy. And all this begs the question, should a billionaire or a corporation have the ability to fundamentally change an integral aspect of the world? Yeah, they do it all the time, and they have since the beginning of money, or maybe even of humans. Of course, our society has a, a long history of taking resources and using them for profit. And it's deeply ingrained in the history of uh, the United States, of capitalism, of colonialism. And it's not really showing any signs of, of slowing down. You could certainly point to many, many examples just in U.S. history of robber barons taking vast tracts of forest land or water or land for railways or for highways. You could point to the, the fossil fuel industry and the automobile industry, which extract natural resources that should belong to everybody, pollute the atmosphere, which does belong to everybody for private profit. And I would say ruining the night sky for profit of the richest man on Earth is reasonably put in that context. It can take an almost superhuman optimism sometimes to feel hopeful in the face of this latest assault on the natural world. James holds tight to any shred of hope he can find. Yes. Um, I'm very happy that the satellites SpaceX is launching are going to come down. They're not permanent. That is, that's the best news I can say about, about the new satellites. Uh, the worry is that other companies will uh, continue to consider the plan and execute those plans to launch at higher elevation where the satellites will be up for a long, long time. Even some of those satellite companies are considering maybe even reasonable plans for how to send up a huge vacuum cleaner and vacuum up the debris, the satellites that are non-functioning anymore. It's a very difficult technological problem to catch up to a, a satellite moving at eight kilometers per second and grab it and bring it back down to the Earth, but it's not impossible. Uh, people have been working on it for a number of years. That'll happen eventually. So yes, I have hope that there will be some technological solutions to these technological problems. I have hope also because uh, there's been such a groundswell of emotion about this. So many people care so much about the night sky. And uh, I mean, of course, a lot can change. Uh, in a hundred years, it's, it's very difficult to imagine what the world will look like, the world of people will look like. So many technologies, so many wars or treaties or agreements or realizations, it's impossible to predict. I feel as if our job right now is 
grapple as best we can with what we have right in front of us and try to put the long-term view on the table. Try to think about all of humanity. Try to think about the rights of everybody. Try to think about the creatures on the earth that don't have a voice in the conversation about the use of space and advocate for them and bring those voices in as best we can uh, and think about the colonial history of the world in the last few centuries and try not to repeat the mistakes that have been made in grabs for land and grabs for resources and try to build this sense of the sky as a commons, a global commons that rightly belongs to everybody. I think probably my greatest source of hope uh, comes from that common vision that's shared by, by many people. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, that if we can bring it into this otherwise miserable, devastating, very tech-heavy and very capitalist grab, then I think we can maybe uh, temper and mitigate and moderate some of the worst that we would otherwise get and maybe build towards a more equitable future and save the night sky. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Support for this episode comes from Poe, a new Stitcher Premium exclusive podcast. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com slash Poe. Click start free trial, select a monthly plan, and enter the promo code Poe, P-O-E. You can find more information about Nocturne at nocturnepodcast.org. Till next time, thanks for listening.